Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 5th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, we have a respite. We're going to have a respite from the Kevin McCarthy 17th vote for speaker uh, reenactment of, 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 of Jean-Paul Sartre's no exit that we are now living through here. Uh, and we're going to pull back and talk about uh, a vitally important issue in uh, the rising uh, crime rate in the United States and uh, uh, liberal and progressive nostrums about dealing with crime with our guest today, Nancy Rommelman, journalist and author who has an extraordinary piece she published last week, I believe, at the Washington Examiner called A Murder in Portland. Nancy is a veteran uh, journalist, podcaster, uh, uh, author of uh, several books. My favorite is The Queen of Montague Street, which is a memoir of growing up in Brooklyn in the 1970s, which you can get on Amazon and is a really um, extraordinary autobiographical portrait of a teenager gone wild. I think, would that be a fair way to describe it? I think that's pretty fair. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, um, but you lived in Portland for many years, though you have now returned, I believe, to to the old sod of Brooklyn and um, and wrote a a true crime book about a, uh, a killing in Portland before this. I did. First of all, good morning, everyone. Thank good you morning. so much for having. I, I actually, if you just want to talk about what happened on the floor last night, I'm I'm happy to do that. It was <laughs> okay. Quite exciting, quite a nail biter. Um, yes, I wrote a book uh, in 2018 called "To the Bridge: A True Story of Motherhood and Murder" about a woman who dropped her two young children off a bridge in Portland, and um, and one of them died. And it was sort of interestingly, I guess. A kind of an examination of um, the city and the ecosystem and, and how we talk about these stories. And then since I left Portland in 2019, that seems to be pretty much what I'm doing because Portland has not given us any shortage of uh, things to write about and dig into. And the latest is, as you said, uh, a murder in Portland about the murder of a young woman, um, 36-year-old Rachel Abraham, by her ex-boyfriend and how the system, it seems to me, um, very made it extremely easy for him to murder her. Um, so the murder in Portland that you are talking about involves a, a domestic violence, yep. uh, a series of domestic violence events between <laughs> Rachel Abraham and her boyfriend. Right. Um, and we appear here <clears throat> to have a fascinating collision of interests, at least among uh, progressives and the left, which is on the one hand, Rachel Abraham is a victim, uh, unabashed victim of domestic violence, several appearances in court, trying to protect herself from this guy, um, which you would think would be a progressive desideratum, uh, abuse, you know, male cisgender supremacy, however you want to call it. And yet the system seemed not only not only the legal system 
and the political system, but also the system of what we might call American NGOs, uh, policy groups that are trying to have an effect on daily life the way we live it, um, all seem to conspire not only to keep him out of jail, uh, but to make it impossible for him, his behavior to be contained, controlled, or handled in any way, so that at any given point on this horrible journey to Rachel Abram, Abraham's murder, um, uh, he did things that should have had his bail revoked. He should have been, you know, he uh, violated restraining orders. He violated things that the court had ruled. And yet judges, not only judges, but this weird world that I want you to talk about of private bail providers, uh, right. which is a which is an entirely new thing in in American life. Uh, people who donate money to nonprofits that then bail people out so that they don't have to spend time in jail um, is an absolutely extraordinary event. Well, so look, if I I get in trouble tomorrow, John, and you say. Nancy, I'm going to come there. I'm going to take out a second mortgage on my house and I'm going because I'm your friend and you're going to come and bail me out. And I'm going to we're going to hire a private attorney. Well, this is normal. I mean, anybody can come and bail me out. So when you have uh, people that cannot pay for an attorney or are not going to get a family member to do it, you think, well, they're kind of up, you know, whatever creek. But in Portland, you know, I think it's interesting when you you uh, you said, well, these organizations, I think in Portland and probably other places, it's not so much this sort of organized, coalesced, we're going to do a really good job and trying to do a good job for these people. It's small individual organizations, which the Portland Freedom Fund was. And one of the things that I believe they derived from being able to bail out people that could not bail themselves out, including some very bad people, um, is they gained a sense of identity. And that is something that Portland in starting with the election of Trump and even before the election of Trump, and certainly in what I call the summer of rage in 2020, they developed a very, very strong identity toward being the people that would walk the walk and do the right thing. And this included, of course, you know, destroying the federal courthouse and destroying their own city uh, in, in many ways. So when you had a Muhammad Adan, who is the who is the person who killed Rachel Abraham, he was black. He was a Somali immigrant. So he fit a profile of somebody you wanted to save. Right. He was an immigrant. He was black um, and he didn't have any money and he didn't have a job. And this was the kind of person their their mission. The bail funds mission was to help black, brown and indigenous defendants. They called them their neighbors. I mean, I sort of don't have a problem with that at all. If you want to start a bail fund for left-handed Croatian tennis players, then be my guest. But what you need to do is you need to do your due diligence. And they did not do their due diligence. And because I believe that the mission in Portland has started, well, it, it started quite a while ago, to blind people to a lot of realities on the ground. And that is why you are able to have someone who has been arrested four times, five counts of felony strangulation, on and on. I see you're raising your hand there, Abe. Um, continually be let out for no bail because he fit the mission, he fit the profile 
of somebody people felt good about helping. When you say they didn't do their due diligence. Yes. Are we sure that's what happened? Well, or, or, I mean, I mean, didn't they see the rap sheet? Well, here's here's how it works in Portland. There is no you've got obviously you've got a district attorney and they're going to press charges. Right. You do not have a public defender's office that's sort of just solely employed by the state. You've got several different ones. They're, they're individual entities and they have to sit in court and they the biggest one is called Metropolitan Public Defender. One of their defenders came in. I believe that they did recommend Mohammed Adan to the Portland Freedom Fund. However, and the Portland Freedom Fund claims that they didn't know about his background. All they had was the recommendation of his defense attorney and then this letter of support that the that the attorney used to say, see, he's a good guy. He's got a letter of support from a, a Somali organization that helps you know, immigrants. Well, that letter of support was basically they thought to help him get a job or fight a DWI in another state. Um, nobody in this story will want who's the sort of officials in the story wants to get down to the granular level of what happened, frankly, because they know they really messed up here. Even the D.A., who's super progressive, you know, he's got a lot of egg on his face here that his office is not able to protect someone that they knew that they had written in June. Mohammed Adan presents a high lethality factor and has said he is going to kill her. I mean, I don't know how much more of a fine point you have to put on it. And the judge still let him out on no bail. Okay, maybe you can help me clarify some of this because I sure. read your piece in Washington Examiner. So I recommend it, the follow-up piece in your sub stack. And that led me to um, do a little bit of reading in PDX Mo Monthly, which had this piece about two weeks ago on Mike Schmidt, who's Multnomah County's DA. And there's something of a revolt in his office. They're losing attorneys left and right. Some of them are coming out publicly criticizing him. Um, Police are leaking his address, apparently accessing it and That's, and leaking I it. I, I mean, that. this is this is something I I can't I can't tell you what's happening here, and it sounds very much like a a, a, a revolt of disgruntled employees that reflects poorly on them. Um, but his priorities seem to be unchanged. This all this whole piece in PDX Monthly is about he doesn't want to be the next Chesa Boudin, and that appears to be an outcome that could materialize. But nevertheless, Chesa Boudin, Chesa Boudin <laughs> being the San Francisco DA who was recalled in twenty twenty last year. It was recalled no, it was, at the beginning of last year. Yeah, I, I, last year. Last if year. I may, I was there. I wrote about the recall, several articles for Reason Magazine. I was at the recall party. Um, and I, you know, he, of course, his crew wouldn't talk to me, but the other side certainly would. Um, well, I think, first of all. Um, but briefly, just to, to finish yes, the, the point, I don't, I, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because there seems to be some decentralization that I'm not, that maybe doesn't, um, is is unique to this particular uh, DA's office. But his priorities appear to be, according to this piece, um, revisiting past sentences, sentencing reform, uh, the humane treatment of undocumented immigrants, struggling with substance abuse and mental health issues, and restorative justice, which is a giant red flag anytime you hear anything. Right. Uh, that any modifier on justice means you're not getting justice. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but so is the message being received? And if it is being received, is this, you're saying that there's this decentralization aspect here. Does he have control over this or is he just a scapegoat? I, I don't think Mike Schmidt is a scapegoat. So when Mike Schmidt was elected, it was in, I believe, uh, June, May or June of, um, of 2020. 
the previous DA who was there was supposed to serve until I think in the fall, in November. He basically said to Mike Schmidt, because we already had the riots starting in Portland, dude, it's going to be your problem. You take over now. Mike Schmidt was the perfect poster boy for what Portland wanted now. They wanted someone to come in and say, do you see what's happening? Do you see that what Trump is doing? Do you see what he's done to immigrants? Do you see how unfairly we have treated people for centuries? We are going to fix that. Mike Schmidt came in and he declined to pro to, to prosecute 92% of the people that were arrested in the protests in um, from May through December of 2020. Now, people can argue, hey, Nancy, um, hey, Noah, like, why do we want to keep these people in jail just because they broke a window? Well, be the reason we want to do that is because then that gave them not only permission to keep destroying the city. And if you've been to Portland last year or the year before, this city has been molested and raped. It was a horror. OK, and you started losing businesses. It's a real, real kick in the nuts. Um, but also you start making laws that make it OK for these kinds of behaviors to continue. And then, like, well, OK, at a certain point, the adults in the room are going to wake up. OK, they're going to say, you know what? This is not working. And that is what's happened. That's what happened in the last election. You had some of the most radical people on the city council, the Joanne Hardesty's, they're gone. You have um, you have moderates coming in and saying, we've got to make some fixes. And now all of a sudden, Mike Schmidt, who was absolutely singing the siren song of what people wanted to hear a couple of years ago, that's not what they want to hear anymore. And so will he be? I, you know, it's interesting. I keep thinking that, yes, he's he might go the way of a Chesu Boudin. But I don't know, man, Portland got some serious identity hits from being the, the city that rioted longer than anybody else, that kept masks on practically longer than anybody else. We are the good people. That's kind of hard for some people either A, to give up or to admit that they're giving up because then maybe they look like you know, traders. See, this is a really important point because there there are a couple of cities that are on this precipice right now, right? Where, as you said, during the summer of rage, there was this real effort to, to I mean, it was like massive virtue signaling about law enforcement. It's like the cops are terrible. They're going to kill anybody who isn't white. It's awful. We're going to give all our money to, to these bail funds. Look, the, the current vice president tweeted out support for the Minneapolis bail fund, which yeah. released lots of terrible people in the city of Minneapolis. She was supporting that. The Democratic Party in particular was way was behind this effort. So fast forward a few years and we see crime and and also really quality of life issues that I think people right. on the left love to downplay. It's like, oh, come on, who are they harming? They're just shooting up on the side of the road. What's the problem? Well, there's a kind of uh, a massive effect on people's daily quality of life. If you live in a city where this this kind of lawlessness, both petty lawlessness and serious lawlessness have been allowed to flourish. And it strikes me that in some of these cities, you're not going to necessarily get a recall because you see you know, we love to talk about systemic racism, systemic oppression. Well, there's a systemic radicalization of what law enforcement and the rule of law mean in some of these places. And by that, I mean, you see efforts by city councils still, even in the wake of rising crime and lawlessness, to redefine what crimes even are, to define oh. down petty crime, to to erase or give second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Here in D.C., if you're under 25, you're a kid, you're a juvenile, you can't know any better, and you're allowed to get away with a kind, kind of horrible violent crimes. So I wonder what your thoughts are on 
on, you know, Portland is a perfect example of this, but, you know, Philadelphia, New York, D.C., um, Seattle, there are lots of cities in this country, L.A., San Francisco, that are still fighting with this idea of do we actually have a wake up call and admit we were wrong on the, if you're on the left? Or do we just start defining crime down so that we pretend that it, it's all working out? Where do, you, where do you see Portland going in that? So the penultimate sentence in my piece was exactly that, that people are realizing that the definition of violent crime depends on like, you know, what lenses you have in your classes, right? I mean, you I mean, you would believe some of the comments I've gotten on Twitter, not just that like they think I made up the whole story, which, OK, whatever, you're you're insane. But that, oh, she's fighting for the other side. It's like, okay, so it's okay. You're actually cool with a mother being murdered in front of her kids because because the you, you got to break a few eggs, right, on the road. Okay, so here's the difference, I think, between, let's say, a San Francisco. And as I said, I did cover the recall of Boudin and also the, the school board. You have a lot, even though San Francisco is a small city in terms of population, you've got a really wide swath of different kinds of people, right? You've got the tech bros who were really did want to get booting out and they've got money and they've got power. And so you can have that change. You can have enough power. Portland doesn't really have that. Okay. Portland is very much of a middle-class city. You don't really have tech bros. You don't really have media. You don't have, so you've got sort of these middle of the road people. Most of them just want to like go kayaking on the weekends and take their kids to soccer, okay? But then you've got the very, very, very radically loud people who have been able to get into the systems that govern things. And it is going to be hard to dislodge that pe those people and these ideas because you are asking people to give up a sense of identity, all right? That's hard. You know, it's not just like I'll get a new car. It's like I was the good person in 2020. And now you're telling me if I get rid of um Mike Schmidt, then where are we going to are we like going to be pro police now? This is it's going to take a little bit. I think it's moving. The pendulum is swinging. But I think when it really comes down to it, are they going to say, you know what, we've had enough? I don't know. Number two, the quality of life stuff is what is eating away at it. You walk through Portland, they decriminalize drugs, which I actually pretty much agree with, but there's no complementary treatment systems. The streets are, it, it's pretty shocking. Um, the amount of sort of like moment to moment quality of life issues you're dealing with, somewhat like San Francisco and the Tenderloin. That I think is what starts moving the needle. People are like, I can't walk my kid to school. All right, I can't do this. This is a problem. How do I fix it? Okay, so I so to pull back from the sort of specifics of whether or not things are going to change uh, and what daily life is like, we also have this larger and very interesting policy question relating to these bail funds, not just in Portland, but elsewhere. Because you, you said at the beginning, look, if you want to bail somebody out, fine. Well, there's an interesting spoke to um, somebody who is involved in prosecution in New York City, and there are bail funds here as well. And um, one of the conditions of bail, one of the reasons that bail is acceptable is this notion that uh, someone essentially temporarily buys their freedom uh, at high cost so that uh, they... Nancy, your friend, you bail somebody out, you're on the hook for the money if they skip, right? right? right. 
you detail here that uh, the Portland uh, bail fund, um, 39 of 67 of the fund's recipients violated their release conditions or skipped court altogether. That is more than 50%. They have no skin in the game, right? They got this liberal organization just sort of shows up and says, here, get out of jail. Come back so we can get our money back. They're like, what do I have to come back? I don't even know. It's who not you their are. money. It's someone That's else's right. money. It's not, it's their, not money. their mother's money. And it's you not know? their mother's money. And that is actually a sort of implicit contract of the bail system is that you can buy yourself out because you are really at risk of ruination or someone is at risk of ruination yeah. if you skip. Right. That's that's right. the thing. And there, and so the system has been created based on an almost religious conviction that being in jail is a human rights violation. And therefore, if someone, so I can understand in policy terms, I think it's a horrible thing, but you end bail, right? You end bail for many offenses. That's what happened in New York state. So there is no bail. So you 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 don't have to pay bail and you can be released. That's a larger policy thing that's voted on by the state legislature. The public is involved in that. And you have this as a kind of general policy, ruinous though it might be. This is some weird other thing where you have a private organization that raises money from stupid lunatic people who go down to courthouses and free violent offenders who then have literally no reason to go back to into the court system to face justice. So they are essentially just providing get-out-of-jail-free cards for people because jail is evil, because the incarceration okay. system is evil. Right. So a couple of uh, questions. Yes, there's no skin in the game for them. What do they care? And, you know, if they read about something later, like, oh, this guy did that. I also think part of the article that that got cut because it was really long when I turned it in was I, I sometimes think that um, Portland Freedom Fund is sort of a uh, a thumb in the eye to like the entire justice system. Like, oh, you're going to arrest this guy for throwing Molotov cocktails. Well, look, we're going to come in because we're so radical and we're going to we're going to do this. Of course, they lost that particular case and lost two hundred twelve thousand dollars. That was a, a separate issue. Um, But I have a question for you, John, and you guys. So if these bail funds, if their weight of the, the return that they're getting and also just they're kind of like their popularity, let's say, in the public eye, don't they kind of axiomatically put themselves out of business? Well, like, who's going to keep giving very, money to these people? Well, Soros might. I mean, in other words, like, here's the thing about the United States. There is so much money. How much money was raised for Black Lives Matter? What was oh. the calculation after 2020? $25 billion was charitably donated to deal with issues relating to Black Lives Matter. $25 billion dollars which is you know the gdp of some small countries and and talk about a, a failure by the way yeah. L- look yeah. look at look at what has ensued in the past two years in terms of uh uh, uh african-american homicide victims yeah. in this country right and accountability so, right i mean right. it's not like black, like black lives matter the money that they raised they were you know so accountable for it but that's of course right. i mean if you give someone that has not had 25 billion dollars 25 billion dollars and expect they're going to be perfect with it that's obviously 
yeah. not gonna work. Right. But I'm just saying, like, if the Portland Bail Fund needs a million dollars a year to throw around for these five thousand, ten thousand dollar bail things, it it'll find it. There'll be some, you know, there'll be some heir to a to a soup can fortune who is, you know, you know doing move to Portland to do batik. And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, I don't know what, you know, homeopathic, you know, dog, you know, dog veterinary flowers. work and, and, you know, hasn't worked a day in, in her life. And then she'll, she'll, you know, throw a million dollars at them because this is all so terrible. And it's so mean that we send people to jail and, and that's all you need. You only need one, you only need one crazy rich person to keep the Portland bail fund afloat. It doesn't, it, that's the thing about this commitment. This is a very radical thing and most people wouldn't support it, but you only need a couple of people to support it, to keep it afloat. Keep I it afloat. look, there's always going to be people throwing money at the wrong things and making problems for other people. That's never, ever going to stop. I think something like the Portland freedom fund, I think they, were so vilified, and I think properly so. Though it is, you know, as I write in the article, whose fault is this really? It's the community that sort of gave the big thumbs up to this for a long, long time. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, wow, what? Maybe not. Maybe this isn't like the best way to treat our neighbors. Um, I, I think she'll probably flame out, but there'll be someone else. There'll be another mushroom, you know, that grows. So um, so we'll see. But I guess, you know, what, what you're also saying, it's like, the real problem here, too, is I, you know, I'm okay with not keeping people in jail for nonviolent crimes. The problem is, and as you were saying before, Christine, like you can't, how do you categorize strangulation as a nonviolent crime? And it's okay for, for this person to be let out. That's where I think you can have some standards. And Portland just keeps making like... I break a window. That's not a broken window. That's free speech. They keep making the definitions of these things fungible and flexible to the detriment, not only to the Rachel Abrahams of the world, but to the city. And I do wonder at a certain point if they're like, you know, guys, we can't be that flexible in terms of how we define violence. Well, it, it, it's it's like an upending of what justice actually means, because in, in all of these debates on the progressive left, when it comes to crime, at the forefront are the perpetrators of crime. What what systemic forces were they responding to? What what needs are we not fulfilling for them as a society? How have we failed them so that they had to strangle their girlfriend and eventually murder her rather than what justice should be, which is you put the victims first. Victims have their rights violated through no fault of their own. And where in the system are we seeing that? I mean, there was a heartbreaking story in the Washington Post last year about a woman who's been one of the key advocates for victims in the in the D.C. criminal justice system. And she she's finally kind of retiring. And she's like she's just heartbroken over how the system has failed victims. So even trying to find out what the person who attacked you, whether they're actually are they out on bail? Did they get prosecuted? It's impossible to even get information about your own cases sometimes. And that's where and we see this certainly with juvenile crime. Um, again, in my city, two thirds of the car armed carjackings in this city are done by juveniles who are then 
papered sent right back out on the street because, you know, oh, they're kids these days seems to be the attitude, but without any consequences for their behavior. And obviously they're not getting those consequences at home. These kids will grow into hardened career criminals who, who will continue to commit crimes. So there's no sense of, and what about their victims? What about, you know, it is traumatic to have a gun put in your face and your car stolen. That's traumatic for people. There's there's no discussion of that in a culture which ironically loves to talk about everyday trauma, victims of crime, their trauma. No one wants to talk about that. No, I think I had several people say in the article, we have to start extending more empathy to the people that are being victimized than to the people that are doing the victimizing. One of the points you make in this in your piece, Nancy, and you've made it briefly here, but I want you to expand on it is. Portland's quest for identity. And there has yeah. to be some sort of a constituency for this thing. In my lifetime, uh, Oregon went from being a pretty red state to being a, a reliably blue state uh, based on transplants, movement into the state. Yeah. Um, and that quest for identity has uh, led it down this very progressive path. And there doesn't seem to be much of a constituency for the kind of uh, criminal justice, the prosecution uh, of of criminal justice that we trip typically associate with more Republican forms of governance. Right. Um, so my question for you, Nancy, is how is this all Fred Armisen's fault? Did he do this to you? And how much do you resent him for it? Oh. You have to explain the Portlandia. And, and Carrie Brownstein. <laughs> and Carrie Brownstein. Put right. on it, Noah. Put a bird so, yes. on it. So Portlandia launched in uh, 2011. I was there then. I was there from 2004 to 2019. And that show launched, in my sort of estimation, at around year five or six, where Portland really had been center stage. And I've talked about this a lot. I talked about it in the piece, in the companion piece on my Substack, and also on an article, which I think you read, John, called, um, we, I think of it as called Good Luck Portland. It's over on um, Tablet. And I wrote it in 2019. It, they actually gave it a different name, but I always think of it as Good Luck Portland because I was leaving. Um, and it kind of charts where, like, where the city was in the early 2000s to where it found itself. It's like the, the 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 sweet cream that they'd created was now curdling. And that happened to be the same year that Portlandia went off the air. So you are absolutely right. Portland, when I got there, was still sort of had this, what I think is a wonderful tension between Republicans and Democrats. It's like, you know, it had a red governor, but the city was blue. And, and it's nice because then things can happen, but also not happen. Well, you had this gigantic influx of mostly college-educated people from you know the East Coast and they were going to come and they were going to make this utopia. And in some ways they really did some interesting things. But then bad things started to happen and then their hair caught on fire because of Trump. And then you had COVID and then the young angry people that didn't know how to move things in the direction they want realized they actually didn't need to build anything. All they really needed to do was destroy to have an identity. I I challenge, I challenge anyone to come and tell me what the people that continually molested the city or their their anger about Portland, what they have built. I have not seen anything built in Portland in the past three or four years. It's only a dismantling without an infusion of ideas to make the city really grow. Now that'll change. Again, we'll get more adults in the room. And I also think, you know, these people that had so much identity in 2020 because they couldn't go to school and they couldn't go to work and they couldn't even leave the house, 
that identity at a certain point, it's not kind of shi- as shiny as fun. And also they're not out in the streets every night getting that, you know, that, that nightly rush, that nightly spurt of relief, as I've called it. I think they're going to kind of, you know, go off and maybe some things can start being built in Portland, but we are still dealing with their insistence that everything in Portland was stacked against, you know, equity and equality. So um, that's still, it's a hard identity to give up. Well, well, one thing is you're, you're seeing maybe the revision of the woke dystopia uh, or some kind of revisiting of the rules of the woke dystopia of the last four or five years. Meanwhile, other, other cities seem to be moving toward it, not away from it, or any effort to sort of reclaim the center uh, is coming up against the combined forces of the woke dystopia and finding it very difficult to act. In New York City, for example, I think in his head, what Eric Adams would like in his head would be to be sort of like a not mean Giuliani. He would like to be a not, he would like to sweep up the homeless from the streets and and take them off the subways, unlike Bill de Blasio, who was sort of happy that they were there because they exposed the truth, the hard truth about American life and the hard hardships of American life. But Eric Adams doesn't have the tools or the uh, capacity to impose or to argue for and eventually change the culture of the city to reclaim it. And this is part of the issue here, which is the work you're talking about is very hard. People will be demonized. People will be called monsters and racists. They will be, it will be said that they are, that they are consigning a generation of young people to lives of penury and hardship and imprisonment. And you have to be able to stand there and take it. You have to take it and say, I'm not, I am for the victims, not the criminals. And uh, right. That's and yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna add Philly, add Philly to your list because Larry Krasner, who's a total progressive DA, since he's become DA, the homicide rate has increased by 46% in that city. He's still blaming the pandemic. So they can't he's still trying to find a scapegoat for his own very poor prosecution law. He does not care about victims. So what was the camel's nose in the tent in New York City? that started to lead things away from these wildly successful uh, anti-crime and social order policies. It was the fact that half a million stop and frisks were happening in the city every year, which meant that 90% or something like that of the people who were being stopped and frisked by the, by, by police were or more than 90% were absolutely innocent of you know were not criminal hadn't done anything and they were having these interfa- interactions with the cops that they found humiliating that is non-criminals who were being treated like criminals and now you have criminals who are being treated like non-criminals we have a total inversion enough people were stopped and frisked and treated like this that uh there was an opening to say effectively this has all gone too far it's way too far like yeah i'm happy that my i'm now going to take for granted that policies like this you know uh have reduced crime and kept crime low 
because I don't want to go through this anymore and everything will be fine. So now you have these new metrics, right, which are, well, okay, the murder rate isn't anywhere near where it was and before the crime drop. Um, but the other metric is the streets are dirty. There are, you know, 10,000 people living on the streets. People are openly smoking pot. They are throwing garbage in the streets. And since no, since misdemeanors aren't being prosecuted, those low-level offenses, there is absolutely no reason for anybody not to commit low-level offenses. But there are and a billion so, other... Yeah. Things are up, though. I mean, in the city. I mean, yeah. So su subway crime is 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 yeah, is a robbery. big one, and and because so many people ride the subway, and stabbings are up um, yeah. by some preposterous. Right. But I'm just saying that there is an interesting thing, which is that which is that sometimes it is true that crime that law enforcement uh, goes too far, particularly yes. when it's had successes, and it's sort of like Hollywood, like they just make the same movie fifty times over because they don't know what else to do, and in law enforcement, it's like. Well, you know, crime, we want to keep crime going down, so we'll just stop and frisk more people. And it's at some point, it's like, you don't want to stop and frisk is kind of like an extreme measure, not a not a regular measure. You only do it when you really are doing what you can to pull guns off the streets because people are getting shot. If people aren't getting shot, you don't have to stop and frisk people. So well, you need vice. You need to return. Look here. You need the return yeah. of vice squads. When I first right. came to D.C., I sat on many. I was constantly called for jury duty, which I love. I love being on juries. Um, but <laughs> many of them began with a vice squad sting operation to right. stop what was clearly, you know, drug crews warring in a certain yeah. neighborhood. And you'd see all the evidence. Those are gone in a lot of cities because right. they were considered racist because they targeted the places where high crime, high violence violent crime was happening. And those happened to be predominantly black or brown neighborhoods. But the citizens of the, the residents of those neighborhoods yeah. are the ones saying, please bring back vice, just make sure they're well trained and not yeah. stopping and frisking every single kid who gets off the school bus. But they're needed. Those those kinds of very targeted enforcement operations were successful. They got dangerous people off the streets. What um, I find a oh. yeah. Go ahead, please. I, I wanted to say something when you when you brought up Krasner, who I wrote about recently and again in a little piece yesterday. I think um I think uh Philadelphia topped 500 murders last year. This is these are a lot of murders. And um when you say, you know, his policies, maybe people were not only are we maybe seeing some of the ramification in, in terms of murder, but like people are not happy about this. They don't want this. And maybe they thought they wanted it, but now they want to change it. People have come back to me and say, you know what, Nancy, that was a completely political move. And it's the Republican House. And it, that's who they wanted. I was like, okay, but what about the 500 murders? Like, are you only going to see it through that lens? And that's what I've gotten in Portland too. I've gotten pushback a little on this article because they're like, you know, you are just absolutely the enemy of reform and of justice. I'm like, so you're okay with her being murdered then? Like you're cool with that because your mission is more important than her life. We have six children now without a mother, but you are going to read my piece and have problems whatsoever. You're cool with it. That drives me. I don't even know how to address that. that Can I that, uh, yeah, bring up there's something that I think also uh, distinguishes Portland, at least from uh, New York here. Uh, I'm looking at the census. Uh, yeah. Uh, the percentage of uh, the population of New York City that is white is uh, 39.8%. Uh, Portland, I have here 73.8%. Well, it used to be a lot lower than that when I got there. I think it was like 92%. 
Yes. Well, then you deal more in hypotheticals, right? I can tell you a very quick story. One of the nights that I was um, out reporting while the, the riots in front of the federal courthouse were going on, the young girl, maybe 20, blonde girl, literally ran up to me screaming. The cops are hurting all my friends in the street. And then she ran off back into the crowd. And I was like, hey, hi, just in case you had wanted to know, the police had killed one person so far that year and the person had been white. But as my late father used to say, don't confuse me with the facts. Their mission needed certain villains. They needed those calories. They needed that sort of oxygen to let it burn. So they're going to believe that. They are going to believe that they are constantly being there under threat from the police and from however, and we are now going to keep these policies in place because they're going to be more fair. It's all, it's, it, it's not based in reality as far as I can tell. So Larry Krasner, you know, 500 murders, right? That you you mentioned, and Larry Krasner won re-election with 71% of the vote in 2021. So um, we have we have the fact that people can't tolerate it, and yet we have no electoral consequences for the person who himself would claim largely respons- large responsibility for a change in the way prosecutions are done in the city of Philadelphia. And that's where... The rubber meets the road. Cities used to have heterogeneous political populations that had a lot of cross currents. I mean, I talk about this all the time. You know, there were there were white ethnics who were socially conservative and supported cops and police that sort of populated the police force. They were like pro-life, Catholic believers, churchgoers, and the disorder and decay that that faced them people faced real consequences, politicians, if they didn't try to do something about this. And now, apparently, not only don't you face consequences, you can be rewarded for being part of the coalition that actually is literally soft on crime. Like, this is not like, you're not being uh, unfairly caricaturing to call Larry Krasner soft on crime. They see it as kindness, John. Yeah. They see it as kindness. Yeah, exactly. They see it as kindness. And then if you're not going to do that anymore, then who are you? Are you an unkind person? Are you on the other side? And also, you know, I sometimes it's hard to say you're wrong. It actually feels really good when you realize you can just do it. But I think it's hard when you've got these institutions that you've built and spent years and millions, if not billions of dollars and convincing people and all of a sudden to say, we're going in the wrong direction. I think it's hard. And I think you also sometimes have painted yourself into a corner, which I think the mayor of Portland has very, very much done. It's hard to turn the car right. around. And um, I I don't know. I, you know, we get back to the question, are they going to recall? First of all, if you did recall Schmidt, are things going to really change? I don't I know. know. It's an interesting question, but you know, it gets to, you mentioned that, that uh, the election of Trump accelerated Holy uh, moly. Kind of, you know, madness <laughs> on the left. And oh, this may be another reason to ardently hope for Trump's passing from the scene, because though they will, though certainly Democrats and liberals will try to resurrect figures on the right as Trump after Trump. And clearly some effort is being made in this regard in relation to DeSantis and others it, it won't have this, you know, demonic quality. And uh, without the, you know, without the colossus that needs to be you know brought down um 
the heat, the counter heat on the left may, right, may, I don't know, will you calm? And the notion that everything has to be done in response, including this stuff about immigration, you know, that not only is immigration, you know, good and Trump thinks it's bad, but that immigrants need to be defended. Uh, you know, any criminality that they commit needs to be supported or excused away because the, to do so, not to do so would be to add fuel to Trump's monstrous fascist fire and all of that. And maybe that's an element of this, but we're still a decade away, I think, from any real massive shift. I think people, you know, Trump was the great provocateur and Portland just, they got so much energy from it. I mean, it just, I mean, you saw what happened on the street. It was incredible. It was an orgy of, of, of violence every night, but a violence that they loved, they absolutely loved. And so, yeah, like if, if Trump, where, where do you get that energy source when you don't have a Trump anymore? So I'm, I'm, I'm obviously glad he's sunsetting for a lot of reasons, but Portland got addicted uh, to that sense. And um, I think that's why they will keep, you know, trying to find reasons to blame other people just to get that, to get that feeling again, you know? Um, but I think, I think it is passing. And you know what? No, I have not read that piece in Portland Monthly, and I will, because I'll be interested to see um, what, again, as I call kind of the adults in the room, are thinking uh, about how Portland might get to its next iteration, because it will. I mean, inevitably, it will, because it's already kind of left the road where we're only going to be the people uh, committing destruction in the street. Well, listen, I can. I bet you can guess where the where the piece goes. You don't even really have to read it. But, oh God, um, no, 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 no! Don't, don't, don't. yeah, don't. Blow, it starts don't off blow articulating the problem. Don't very ruin well, Nancy's but... morning. Oh no. <laughs> um. So, by the way, we should we should uh, just uh, briefly go into the fact that Portlandia, which we mentioned, is it was yeah. a show on IFC, was a sketch comedy show with Fred Ar Armisen and Carrie Brownstein that was the first sustained parody over I think seven seasons of yeah. wokeness. Uh, it's about it's about the it's about wokeness before wokeness had 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 the name that we now assign to it and the comic elements of uh communities of uh you know sort of like-minded post-hippie millennial gen x people who uh who lived are trying to live this life of purity and all the contradictions in it and it's very brilliant and it's i haven't seen it since it since it went off the air very interesting how whether it seems dated or whether it's a time capsule or whether it's prophetic we should spend a couple of minutes nancy said yep. she would be happy to talk about what happened in the house yesterday and i said that you know thought we wouldn't you know it's like no exit but uh let me let me just um let me just ask you guys this this question so apparently there was movement there's possible progress. The 20 Republicans who are voting against Kevin McCarthy and making it impossible for there to be a new speaker uh, voted for. Uh, Ten of them are now apparently moving toward McCarthy with various concessions having been made, but not the other 10. And he needs, he can only have seven defections or something like that. <laughs> and some parts of the deal are interesting and some of them are are, are, are psychotic. Like one of them is, <laughs> Vote on uh, vote on appropriations bills one at a time. That is the bills that fund the government by department. Uh, 
um, rather than stitching them all together into into an omnibus of tr that cost that, that spends trillions of dollars, so that they so that the public will know what's in them, which is on the one hand seems very sane and rational. I don't think it will work because the way everything is so hotly divided now that it could take ten people to make it impossible for there to be an appropriations bill passed at any given moment. And then we're just back where we were, and then the federal government won't be funded. And then the second, uh, so that's one. And well, you other... actually gloss over what's what's really striking in that, what, insofar what? as it allows Democrats to proceed in in the process as well, perhaps even hijack the process yeah. or f discover for themselves a coalition with four or five Republicans, who, yeah. so they could advance their own their own objectives. Right. It's, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting your con Go ahead. concessions, but the no. the list of concessions is insane. It drives you insane. Um, and, and, you know, there's something to be said for for regular order and no more omnibuses. And, you know, that's sort of that's in, in interesting. But all in all, it just strips the speakership of power and the party of power. So now he's agreeing to this one person vote on uh, the, the motion to vacate the speaker. So just any person can can set this this in motion and then they'll have to they'll have to vote on it, um, which effectively strips the, the office of speaker of its power. In that regard, it doesn't allow him to to have uh, committee assignments, certain committee assignments. Um, it, it he gives up this idea that the uh, the party itself can actually intervene in these open seats, open open seats in dark red districts. Well, the he, he doesn't he, have any say over that anymore. Just seeds not it the party. He, growth. He, he his fund. He his and, fund and at and the same time, growth. right? And at the same time, I understand he's this is one man in the speakership, but he's a, he's the one of the most powerful people in the united states government Not anymore constitutionally should be the most powerful person in the government um and the party it's and and a, and a representative of the party and by sacrificing this authority um it's it just strips more of of the authority of the republican party decentralizes its power and is this is it's sort of a grand theory but the republican party has been moving in this direction for quite a long time it was sort of interrupted by trump's assertive personality but it continued to pace under his power the dismantling of, of the covid regime and chronicled in um in carnage uh the the I'm blocking on his name tim's book um tim alberta tim yeah. alberta's book the degree to which the party has been decentralizing disaggregating its authority uh according to the whims of people who make up the Freedom Caucus and outside the the House Freedom Caucus. Um, so if there's a grand story here, it is of the, the Republican Party going to war with itself and just seeding and sloughing off layers of its own power to appease a vocal minority. Um, the ultimate endgame being something very anarchic and perhaps not to the benefit of the Republican Party, but it's not authoritarian. You can't call it authoritarian. No, it's it's anarcho-syndicalist. I mean, it is it is it is something new uh which is that generally speaking in politics you you build coalitions to accrete power and this is a disaggregation of a coalition i mean what we're seeing is an active disaggregation of a coalition by the coalition itself I, that that doesn't really have a lot of precedence uh it doesn't make any sense in political theory terms um uh, you are strengthening four or five or six individuals at the expense of 215 other people. It's that is not normal uh, human behavior, let alone political behavior, but it is the logical outcome of the last 15 years of Republican right. politics. Right. It was, it was, I, I, we were watching it on C-SPAN last night. That was, that was close to anarchy. 
<laughs> I mean, I think it's very important to note <laughs> there are these moments along the way. Uh, things happened uh, that I think in retrospect you can see a kind of uh, implosion of Republican authority. The first one, I would say, was even though I was very much supportive of it, was the revolt against the nomination of Harriet Myers in 2005 to the Supreme Court. That nomination was derailed by conservatives, principled conservatives who said, we have a Supreme Court nomination here. This is the most important thing the president does. And Bush is giving it to his crony, who he feels sorry for because she's not married, his White House counsel, who has no ideological tincture whatsoever. And... The nomination had to be withdrawn. The president, who was at, then at the height of his power and should have been able to sort of get anything he wanted from his party, uh, couldn't get that. And then the next year, there was another party revolt on an issue, which was immigration. Bush pushed immigration, liberalization of immigration, and the party revolted against him, and it had to be withdrawn. And that model, which was the internal fight against uh, Republican moderation, then just, it was like a boulder rolling down a hill. And the problem is that without without a certain amount of, uh, Matt, Matt Connolly talked about this yesterday, that when Tom DeLay was effectively running the House under Denny Hastert, he was a son of a bee, right? He threatened people, he cut them off, he was... He made them do what he wanted to do, including people who ended up voting for Medicare Part B, which they Part D, which they really didn't want to do, prescription drug, the prescription drug benefit. And they held open a vote three and a half hours long, and then delay just beat people up for hours and threatened them and you know was basically, you know, gonna threaten to kill their children unless they unless they, you know, cast the vote that was necessary. Like that was the last moment at which the Republican Party had a real disciplinary authority over over its members. And that's interesting. It's an this and when you don't have that, it turns out that the rule of entropy, our favorite thing, things start to, you know, the 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 orbit starts to degenerate. And this is the logical and you still have, and you have plenty of these people also marveling at the degree to which Democrats march in lockstep with each other, and, and ruefully in some ways, but also being like, like, ah, at least we're not these people. But then at the same time, Democrats manage to cajole their members into passing legislation, even at the risk of tens of seats that they see coming, and manage to move the ball forward legislatively, affect historic changes to the social contract, and they say, well. You know, how can they get it's just some sort of preternatural democratic thing that they have going on that we can't possibly manifest for ourselves. And it's just party discipline and the mechanisms of party discipline, which are also punishment. But it's one of the things that these people asked for was amnesty. They literally asked for amnesty for this for this uh, revolt. Uh, And they, you know, a a competent party wouldn't give that to them. Well, but I I don't think it's just party discipline. Um, I think that there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans these days in that or between liberals and between the left and the right these days in that uh, on the, the left we're talking what their, their disagreements are a matter of degree and it could be very strong it could be a, 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 a the contrast can be great but there's a direction that they all sort of acknowledge yeah. um there's an end there's you know 
uh, whether it depends how far down that road you want to go if you're if you're on the left or if you're a Democrat. Um, Republicans are fundamentally at odds uh, with one another. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's an important point that in Obamacare, what we have there is people who wanted single payer and then others saying, look, that's just a bridge too far. But look, if we can start down this road by making these changes and and bringing government into healthcare in a way in a, a way that it has never been before uh, we can <clears throat> we can get to where you are and what's more even if you lose your seat you can walk around saying to people i i lost my seat because we did something historic right that's part of the difference here marjorie margolis mavens he lost her seat in in 1994 um voting for uh, uh the clinton's tax increase and she spent the rest of her life saying look what i did like i i helped save this presidency that was so important for us and that 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 meant something similarly but i think abe is right like you have the republicans who are for the war in ukraine the republicans who are against the war in ukraine you have the republicans who believe in a certain level a certain amount of immigration and Republicans who think that even legal immigration is monstrous. The party of the right is not cohesive. It's sort of anti-cohesive. And maybe what we're seeing here is a reflection. A, maybe Trump's election itself was a reflection of the anti-cohesion. And now we see here this anti-cohesion. And it's it's not, you know, you're saying a good party would be able to discipline these people. So if that's what a good party does and it can't, then it's not that it's a bad party. It's that it's not a party anymore at all. I don't know what you would call. I mean, it's a party because there's a thing called Republican, the Republican Party. It exists in all 50 states. It helps run elections. It helps, you know, pick candidates and all of that. But what it is as a governing entity is non-existent. I think. I mean, all but non-existent now. And and McCarthy will probably survive and be speaker because I don't really see. It's now three days and there's literally no realistic alternative. But what what will it mean for him to be speaker? It'll be like being head of the RNC. What does it mean to be head of the Republican National Committee? Nothing. It's like, what does it mean to be? You know, with all these institutions that have were so important and have now crumbled, like. Name the president of Yale. Go ahead. President of Yale was once a world-famous figure. Name the president of Yale. I mean, I can, actually, but that's just weirdness on my part. I mean, <laughs> name the, you know, go ahead. Like, institutional figures that had a lot of institutional authority now have a lot less. Well, an, an institution like a political party cannot be held together by blackmail and acceding to blackmail. I mean, this is if he does become speaker, yeah. he'll have acceded to his blackmailer's demand. So whatever, you know, he'll be resentful. They'll be triumphant and self-righteous and nothing will get done. I mean, my my view now is just to just to be, you know, anarcho-syndicalist in response is Kevin McCarthy has apparently struck this deal where he says he will not intervene in his fund will not intervene in primaries and the club for growth will not intervene in primaries. You know what they should do after they sign the deal and he becomes speaker? Intervene in primaries. He should spend $10 million and get Matt Gates, lose Matt Gates his seat in a Republican primary. Now, can he do that? Will they will they go for a motion to vacate the chair? Yeah. Then what? We're once back we're back again in a circumstance where yeah, they can bring up a vote to vacate the chair. They still need 218 people to vote 
for whoever replaces him. And there are going to be 190 people who are behind him who would be really happy to see $10 million spent to destroy Matt Gates. And if McCarthy has any, you know, cojones at all, that's where he'll go. But guess what? He doesn't. That's that's and you can't do it today because the primary is in 2024. But, uh, you know, that that's what I do. But of course, I'm not in politics. I'm just like, you know, I'm a caller, caller into a talk show. Nancy, your thoughts. Oh, I'm just listening. I because I'm always thinking about Portland. I just thought what Abe was saying in terms of the left and there's just degrees, you know, obviously Portland is very left and people signed on for what was happening there in degrees. You had the people that were going to be vocal and make it happen. And then the people that are just going to be like, okay, I won't say anything. I might not agree. And there was also that sort of you know, Portland's super big on retribution, like, you know, publicly exposing people and destroying people's business. So like, maybe I'm just going to be quiet over here. Like, I, I may not agree with the fact that you smashed in my friend's restaurant, but I'm going to say anything because, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want it to be my turn in the barrel. Um, so I guess there's an interesting parallel with the, with what went on in the house and the left, like everybody sort of performing in lockstep and what I see sometimes happening in Portland. So Portland, is Portland is Portland the past or is Portland the future? That's really the question. If Portland, if what's happened, if Portland has crossed the Rubicon and is now on its way back to sanity because of the horrible misbehavior that you detail uh, in your in your wonderful piece, then that's thrilling. And if you're actually showing us what the future is going to look like in America, dear God. I, so I'm the, uh, my, my, my middle name is Pollyanna and I always believe that everything will be rebirthed and Portland will too. There will be other iterations for Portland. I actually do think that we are seeing the sunsetting of this sort of mindless destruction and accepting what's happening in terms of the shredding of the social fabric. The city just can't take it. It just was so bad. And I think people want to build things that are beautiful. It's what I keep encouraging people. I seem to end every article with like, look toward the sunshine, people. Like, build beautiful things. So I hope so. I mean, why not? Why not? But that's have a wonderful attitude. It's a wonderful attitude. You were run out of Portland in part because your husband opened a coffee I, shop I, and I, was driven. I know. You know, but they penury. only rob themselves. They only rob themselves of delicious coffee. And at a certain point, you're going to say, like, "Hey, I really liked that delicious coffee." But you know what? Someone else will make delicious coffee, and you know, we will. I, I, I only wish good things for the city. I will say, for me, Portland is the story that keeps on giving because they keep doing crazy things over there, and I'm going to stay on that story. As okay, well. John's, John's only pushing back, Nancy, because your optimism goes totally off brand for our crushing morosity. <laughs> but right. I like it. We need doses of That's optimism. Right. We, need opti <laughs> we need optimism, even though there is absolutely no justification for optimism whatsoever. <laughs> Just remember, no justification. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. But, you know, it's not the money bet here. Yep. I'm sorry to say. And I actually am a big, I'm a big believer in consequences. So let's see if they can start um, instituting some of those in Portland. Fantastic. Well, listen, Nancy Rommelman, everybody Google a murder in Portland, Washington Examiner, uh, read Nancy's uh, To the Bridge. To the Bridge, is that right? To the Bridge, yeah. It's and on Amazon. the Queen of Montague Street and follow her Substack. 
You also yep. have a podcast, I believe. I do. I have a podcast with journalist Sarah Heppelock called Smoke Em If You Got Em. Yeah, that you can uh, go follow us over there. And my Substack is nancyrommelman.substack.com. And I'm on Twitter at Nancy That's Rommelman. two M's, one L, two N's. That's right. Thank you, Okay, John. there you go. Two That's M's, correct. one L, two M's, Rommelman. Yep. Uh, thanks for joining us. And thanks so for much Abe, for having me. You bet. And for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.